On July 23rd, 1967, the two crises that would bring down Lyndon Johnson collided with destructive consequences. In Detroit, over 80 African-American revelers gathered in an illegal bar to celebrate the return of two Vietnam veterans from active duty. The joyous gathering was cut short when police descended on the bar and decided to arrest every single person they found. Catching wind of the police raid, a local crowd gathered to make their feelings known, and amid the abuse being hurled at the largely white police force, someone threw a bottle at an officer. The fuse was lit. The Detroit riot, sometimes known as the Uprising of 1967, had begun. Five days later, 43 Americans were dead. One observer noted that the great industrial city, which had once proudly stood as America's arsenal of democracy and the heart of motor manufacturing, now looked more like Dresden after the Allies had flattened the German city. For Lyndon Johnson, Detroit, an emblem of America's so-called urban crisis, was a sobering reminder that his dream of a great society, of eliminating racism and poverty, seemed further away than ever. And the news coming from Vietnam was little better. July 1967 was the deadliest month for US forces up to that point in the war. As the American military continued to sink deeper into the quagmire, more and more Americans began to question why their country was involving itself in a war of questionable justification and morality. With American society starting to come apart over Vietnam, over the urban crisis, and over a host of other contentious issues, events quickly overwhelmed the president who had looked untouchable only two years earlier. Soon, Lyndon Johnson would remove himself from the presidential race. The dream, it appeared, was over. This is episode four, The Crisis. Do you feel that it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of his race or color? Well, the nigger's all right in his place, but they've always been behind us and just tell you the truth. I want them always stay behind me because I never have loved a nigger. And we shall overcome. You my enemy. My name is a white people, not Vietnam, Chinese, or Japanese. You my opponents when I want freedom. You my opponents when I want justice. You my opponents when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. I shall not seek. And I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. A teenager held up a sign, bring us together. And that will be the great objective of this administration at the outset, to bring the American people together. Hello and welcome to episode four of our series on Lyndon Johnson's America. This, of course, is the American History 2 podcast. I am Mark McClay and I am joined down the line in Huddersfield by Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Hello from a rather damp and rainy Huddersfield. So if you can hear a pattering sound in the background, it is the rain falling on my window, as a song might say. That was very poetic, the way you put that. It was. I can't stand the rain against my window. There we go. <laughs> um, I mean, we haven't told the listeners the, the name of today's episode. It is called The Crisis. It is indeed um, The Crisis. We have had The Ascent, The Dream, The War, The Crisis. I only, I, I'm sort of seeing an arc, a narrative arc that we're implying on this story. Can, can, you, can you guess what's going to happen at the end of this? Who knows? I know. Um, 
Cool. So, I mean, today we're roughly going to be talking about um, the the time span. We left off in 1967, sort of mid-1967, with the war not going very well. And today, I think we're only going to cover about a year. Um, we'll either get to March 1968 and the big secretive event that I'm sure you don't know by now occurs then, or we'll get to... July 1968, which is another big secretive event, um, which we will reveal if we get there in time. Um, I'm basically assuming that everybody who's listening to this roughly knows the story of 1968 since we've done podcasts that have talked about it before. Mm-hmm. So this is quite a tumultuous time in the United States, both in terms of foreign affairs and, and you know in domestic context. Before we go on to discuss these you know, major major developments that are taking place. We need to think what what must it have been like to live through those those years. I mean, there's often the old phrase, you know, that you're cursed to live through interesting times. Do you, I mean, do you think looking as a political historian, primarily focused on kind of domestic politics in America, do you think there's a comparison that we can draw between the political tumult that we are seeing just now and that period in 1967 68? No, I don't. Um, I think today's uh, politics is yeah the politics is tumultuous mainly because of the, the great partisanship um and the the somewhat chaotic figure in the White House just now. Um, in 1967, 1968, pol- like, politics was you know it, it was it was okay. What was wrong with society? Um, and in what was wrong. Today isn't. It's not. I. I wouldn't argue that today's political crisis in America is born of societal problems. Yes, I mean you can look at the Great Recession as to maybe leading to the reasons why you eventually end up with Donald Trump, but things. I think if you're going about your daily life in the United States of America, aside from some people who, who you know, there's always sort of losers in society. It is generally a staid, happy society. I think there is no great war going on. There is no great cultural clash. There is nothing akin to the urban crisis. There is not riots or uprisings in American cities every single year. None of that is there. Um, there's there's a political storm, but it's 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 not brewed. I don't think it's brewed by societal conditions. In the 1960s, people were cursed. I think to live through interesting times. You know, I mean, 1968 feature assassinations of people like Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. As you've already said in the introduction, 43 people die in the Detroit riot. Uh, Many people die in the Newark riot that takes place in that summer of 1967. Um, People are going to die in Vietnam War protests uh, as we go into the 1970s and the Kent State shootings. You know, there is, I think there is a lot more reason to, that that phrase applies to people in the 1960s at this point um and it doesn't really apply to the modern day we've sort of managed to manufacture ourselves a crisis almost as a way of entertainment in a sense at least that's my maybe very debatable take on it i don't know what you think so i mean do you think that in terms of looking at america in the the, this 1967-68 period is it appropriate for us to go a crisis and how I mean, how do we define a crisis? You know, in 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 Britain, many of us are kind of familiar with the famous kind of headline. You know, Jim Callaghan came back uh, into into Heathrow in nineteen seventy nine during the winter of discontent and all that kind of thing, and kind of attempted in some way to kind of you know, shrug off what Britain was going through at that point in the late nineteen seventies. And there's a famous headline: "Crisis, what crisis?" 
and all that kind of thing. So is this a crisis and how we, how do we define it? Yeah, so I mean, in some sense, if you're an economic historian looking, looking at the 1960s, if you're sort of of the Marxist persuasion that economics underlies everything, then there is no such thing. There is no crisis in the United States in the 1960s because it's probably the most prosperous era to be growing up in. It's the era when you're most guaranteed to have a greater standard of living than the previous generation. Um, and the wealth is, by historical standards, very well spread out in that sense. So if you're looking at it in purely economic terms, then I, I can refute exactly what I just said. So you can maybe say today we have greater inequality than we did back then. Um but in terms of society and culture, you know, I mean, in terms of, of racism and in terms of or just race relations, in terms of trust in government, in terms of um, the fact that you may well, if you're a young man at this point, you have a great deal of chance of being brought, uh, you know, drafted to fight a war that you may not believe in and you have a good chance of dying uh, and the what you know we're still in the midst of the Cold War at this point, where you know maybe the the looming threat of nuclear war is slightly more vivid than it is for us today. Okay, can I just interrupt on that moment? This is one of the interesting things that I find mm. about this period when we're talking about crisis. Are we primarily thinking about the domestic context? Because this is the era where we're moving towards détente. Yeah, post-Cuban yeah. missile crisis, the era of you know the hotline, the limited test ban treaty moves towards the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, which we might talk about a little bit later. But is this domestic rather than this kind of overarching sense of Cold War crisis? Is this really we're talking about the the domestic yeah. context here? A, 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 yeah, absent Vietnam, apart from apart from Vietnam, enough, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's what that's what makes it tricky because you can't yeah. separate Vietnam from the domestic crisis. No, they no, are absolutely. Both, you know, it's 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 probably even more important uh, as much as it pains me to say it as a domestic historian. The Vietnam War is the most important feature of what is going on here. I'd say arguably even more so than than the urban crisis. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I, I think you're right. I think this we is the crisis being over dramatic. But to that, I would say, well, what do you actually need to have a crisis? <laughs> well, how do we? So, so well, why don't let's let's move on to think about looking in detail at different aspects of this this crisis. Uh, so, the crisis at home. Let's look at the domestic context first. We're familiar. The Vietnam War is going on, but a huge issue. I mean, throughout American history, up to the present day, but in this period as well, what really looms large is questions of race and racism. So and we've seen the successes of uh, the civil rights movement, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty four, the Voting Rights Act of nineteen sixty five. We're now in that kind of period, you know, after these you know great achievements of uh, of civil rights, but things start to you start to go wrong. We're seeing an increase in 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 violence, in kind of really you know active physical uh, dissent. And as we you know looked at this, we talked about in the the introduction, you know Detroit is just an example of what are sometimes described as as race riots in the United States. So what are these events? And is I mean is the term race riot really a useful term? Yeah. So to unpack those questions, I mean first of all, um, 
how how frequent are they and how did they occur? I mean, they occur every single summer of Lyndon Johnson's presidency, which is sort of that great contradiction that he is the, the president that arguably does more for civil rights um, and and indeed sort of trying to give power and um, full citizenry to, to African-Americans um, than any other president, arguably even to, to this day. Um, and yet... Uh, it's only in his presidency that in every single summer there is uh, what, 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 as you said, have been termed race riots. Um, in terms of, um, I'm sorry, I should say most notably, you have the Watts riot in 1965 and then the Long Hot Summer, which we've had a podcast in 1967. Then in 1968, you'll have uh, the post-Martin Luther King assassination riots, which leave sort of downtown Washington and Washington, D.C. in flames um, and, and areas all over the country. In terms of what what the nomenclature you should use for these, um, I I am sympathetic to. I, I think first of all it depends on what event you're discussing. Now some events where it would be it would be more appropriate to use the term uprising or rebellion uh, as people prefer, where um, African Americans are very much or the african-americans take part are very much provoked into it i mean you could probably apply that to almost all riots whereas there are others where maybe the term riot is slightly more usable into it's, it's hard to unpack this and especially feel uncomfortable as a, as a white person trying to do so um because i mean race riot if we look back through american history is frequently applied so if we look for example tulsa yeah, in nineteen twenty-one, should not be called a race. Yeah, is a, is a, yeah, is yeah. used as a term to apply to. Well, it's actually white people killing African Americans or yeah. killing Chinese Americans or or whomever. Yeah, yeah. so the, the, there's a complex it, terminology there. Yeah, whereas in Detroit, it's twenty-three African Americans die and ten white people die, I believe. And I think so. It's you know the societal conditions are there that mean that you're likely to get this the, the, this type of thing happening but that does not mean that every single you know like sort of urban african-american that participates in a race riot is doing it, or an uprising is doing it for you know the the sort of praise you know the, the praiseworthy motives of trying to improve conditions there are also people who jump on the bandwagon and it, it's one of these things that i almost think it misses the point to debate the name of it i understand why people do but the larger story is well they wouldn't be happening if there weren't conditions um in place to whether it be discriminatory policing um the fact that you've also got at this stage while we only really think of deindustrialization as being a sort of 1970s phenomenon um you you have a lot of you know detroit is already suffering from the fact that american manufacturing is on the decline in the 1960s and people are losing their jobs and in fact one of the sort of recent studies has shown that it generally detroit was thought of as being a riot that was done perpetrated by or that was started and carried out by on the african-american side by the underclass there became this fixation on the uh, the underclass as a sort of a poor non-employable group of um of americans that that were in american cities whereas actually most of the people that take part are people who've had an education people who had a good job um and are now butting up against the fact that the jobs are going um so i mean i know i've given a really sort of mealy-mouthed answer around that but i don't think there are clear people want to be able to label these things and give them really simple reasons and, and things and i, I 
you know, it's hard to do so because every event is different in a way. So, so in short, I mean, these events are reactions to discrimination in the broadest sense, employment practices, housing practices. So even in the North, using things like urban planning to create yeah, yeah. de facto segregation. Uh, yeah. Even in the post-civil rights victory period. and So, you know, civil rights doesn't magically cause racism and segregation to evaporate uh, in some joyous, fluffy cloud. It's still absolutely there and it's still causing all these problems yeah. and people are still feeling that the, you know, that they're not being listened to, that they're being maltreated, which they are yeah. in many cases. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the civil rights legislation don't, only does anything for the South. Does nothing for the North. I mean, the, the North, which I think we've said in this podcast a lot, is not some haven of racial utopia. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. It, is, it, it just doesn't write its segregation in law a lot of the time. It's sort of unspoken. It's these unwritten agreements with housing associations where you don't allow black people to live there, um, or it's you know I'm afraid we have to pass over you for the job um, because we've seen you know what race you are. You know, it's a lot of these unwritten ways, which is harder to write a law to get you know to conquer yeah and so you can understand the the you know the frustration on the part of of many of the people that racial minorities living in the cities at this point so so what are the impacts so i mean there's this kind of like see this chain of civil disturbances what what do they what do they do what are the impacts i mean in terms of both at the level of the federal government at the level of the white house also locally and in terms of kind of like people in the us more more widely what are the different reactions to it and what impacts do they, they really have yeah i mean i could characterize the reactions quite quickly because i think i've done so in a previous podcast i mean the the reaction to riots essentially means that a lot of white americans turn against a further african-american progress in terms of housing desegregation or in terms of funding poverty programs um which were often at this point targeted towards urban the urban black population a lot of the white population swiftly turn against continuing to support programs like that um and it also creates further splits among the african-american community those who have bought into Martin Martin Luther King's non-violent approach, and and those who are are sick of such an approach believe it's completely inadequate and want to push further, um, put, like apply further pressure through violence, um, to to the relative authorities, and then you have politicians who either decide to support, you know, poverty programs and think out of fear that there'll be more riots. Or they go right, okay, and then you get the or the other approaches to emphasize law and order and to beef up police forces and to crack down and to do all the things that will lead to the war on drugs and will lead to the SWAT forces that you know we've talked about elsewhere. Um, in terms of how the different levels of, of government divides, I mean, Detroit's a real example of how government and and federalism in America can really be dysfunctional. You you have the mayor Jerome Kavanaugh who's. Uh, a sort of big liberal supporter of po poverty programs. He's then uh, disagreeing with the the governor of Michigan, um, George Romney, who's a Republican, who is also is sympathetic to the riots, but has different solutions. And then you have this tension going on with Johnson in the White House, whereby neither Romney nor Johnson want to be the one that ask for national troops to be sent in, you know, the National Guard to be in to quell the riot. Um, because George Romney is a potential presidential candidate to run against Lyndon Johnson in 1968. Even Jerome Kavanaugh, the, the mayor, wants to be president one day. So you've got all of these competing political 
um, motivations going on, which does nothing to help the situation in Detroit. So it's in the short terms, these are great challenges to the American system of government, which in many ways they don't, they aren't able to meet. And how, and how is this kind of related to kind of like the challenges that the post sixty four sixty five civil rights movement faces? Or civil rights movements, you know, because there's a, there's a lot of complexity there, and the changes that are taking place within, I mean, particularly kind of you know, African American attitudes towards civil rights, uh, their relationship with with the state, uh, their position as, as Americans. How is this all interrelated with these, you know, these changes? Yeah, I mean, sort of in terms of how they're perceived, just, you know, kind of what I said there before, there's this change in perception, you know, someone, I can't remember who, you know, sort of has a quote, something along the lines of the, the victim, they change from the the image of the long-suffering victim of Southern brutality, of, of people like Jim Clark, of, um, of Bill Connor, to American society now, white American society, perceiving the angry young black person you know, hurling a Molotov cocktail um, in, a, in an urban slum. And and they very much begin to get stereotyped, um, African-Americans as whole as being, as being violent. If they weren't already stereotyped like that before the 1960s anyway, this reinforces it, of being lazy, um, of wanting to live off government welfare. And that, that has a, a big impact on government policy going forward. In terms of how the civil rights movement deals with this, I mean, as you, as I'm sure you're well aware, the civil rights movement had long had had a lot of splits. You know, going back to when we taught freedom riders, and we we you know you look back then how members like student members of that movement used to mock Martin Luther King as Delaud, you know, as th- th- this this figure that just showed up, you know, when the cameras were there. Um, and even if you know if you if you watch the, the the film Selma, well, I've got some issues with that film. It does really a good job of showing how there was so many different competing voices in the civil rights movement arguing different tactics that should be taken ranging from non-violence um to to more aggressive more confrontational measures with american authorities um and so it's sort of it's kind of interesting in, in an odd way the martin luther king's death in 1968 um in april of 1968 and, and his assassination almost Bring it, bring it, almost unifies the all elements that had broken because they're all so angry that you, you see this huge outburst of anger across the cities. On for someone who had become an increasingly divisive figure in the movement um, as it had gone along. So yeah, I mean the urban crisis it it, it gives it, it it has many. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to think the way to put this some people are happy that the urban crisis comes to the fore amongst the civil rights movement and, and others are less so others would prefer to work with with closely with lyndon johnson and follow the methods that white politicians would prefer them to follow so aside from i mean the, the crucial and central importance of kind of you know, the race issue in the united states there's also a hell of a lot of other stuff going on you know, at this moment, uh, you know, in American history, and we're going to go through kind of different aspects of this, and we're seeing the, I mean, the the rise and significance of, you know, what would be called second wave feminism, uh, and and the rising, you know, key figures protesting against you know entrenched misogyny and sexism in the United States and and globally as well, but also within the anti-Vietnam War uh, movement as well. So, I mean, you see kind of uh, the rise of important organisations like Women's Strike for Peace, 
figures like Bela Abzug, uh, who are kind of like you know, really kind of bringing together, you know, in many ways, feminist and anti-war issues. Yeah, uh, I mean, in no- nowhere is that seen more clearly than in the, the Miss America protest that takes place in 1968. Um, and this is a, this is the, the protest which gives uh, the famous sort of bra-burning myth. Um, they, they didn't actually burn their bras, they just threw them into a, a, a freedom, I think it was a freedom can, I think they called it. And this, this is... Um, they're the idea of a group called New York Radical Women, and essentially they are protesting the the very idea of Miss America, um, and all the the way it creates stereotypes about women to live up to for men. Um, but one of the things interesting they do, one of the they have a list of ten points that they that they want to achieve in their protest, and one of the prominent ones is they are against the Miss America because one of her main responsibilities is a tour of the troops in Vietnam to go over there and support the war effort, to lift their morale and to be an emblem of the girl next door um, that American troops are fighting for. And so they they tie these two elements, these fighting for female equality and protesting the Vietnam War together in a really interesting way. But, you know, it's not just them. You've also mentioned Women's Strike for Peace. There's also a group called Another Mother for Peace um, that come out. And then there's the Jeanette Rankin Brigade. Um, Jeanette Rankin was famously one of the, I think she was either the only, she was the first, she was either the first or second female to ever be in Congress. And she, I think, was the only person in Congress who voted against both the war, First World War and the Second World War. Um, so she was a sort of rallying figure for people who were pacifist and against war. And the Jeanette Rankin Brigade, I believe, play quite a significant role in the the march on the Pentagon in 1967, which gives all those sort of famous photos of of you know sort of hippie women putting flowers in the in the guns of of the National Guard surrounding the Pentagon, and 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 women, I think, one of the reasons they joined their own organisations is because the the Vietnam War anti war movement was famously misogynistic. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting thing that on top of everything else, because things like second wave feminism, things I know you, you wanted to talk about the rise of environmental protests and things like these, they are learning the lessons of the success of the early civil rights movement, mm. how to protest in non-violent and provocative ways, um, and and to, to to campaign for 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 the rights. You know, historians refer to the nineteen sixties and seventeens as this rights revolution. Mm-hmm. The idea that we have these inalienable rights and how to go about getting them. Another one of the, I mean, just as a side note, one of the interesting things about Women's Strike for Peace, you know, it becomes very closely associated with anti-Vietnam War activism. But the fact that it starts in nineteen sixty one as a as a women's anti-nuclear movement which is is a really interesting and campaigns against nuclear testing and the threat of nuclear war and then metamorphoses as anti-nuclear protest becomes less of an issue in the mid to late 1960s into being associated with anti-war protest and everything so it ties together a lot of aspects of domestic politics of cold war issues of all of these kind of things uh, going on so yeah so much important stuff happening and yeah you mentioned in the you know, the rise of you know environmental consciousness and the the rise of the the ecology movement as 1962 so you know i mean just before lyndon johnson becomes president rachel carson's silent spring you know is published about the 
horribly... One of human events' most dangerous books. Yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the... It's crazy. Uh, I love how you list that as one of the most dangerous books. I mean, really? Uh, but the, the horrible effects of like pesticides, DDT in particular, on on the natu- natural world. And I mean, you know... I mean, Silent Spring is kind of... This is this is a facile comparison, but do you think that kind of we can compare the advent of Silent Spring with what Greta Thunberg is doing just now, just in terms of the way that it brings these issues into the public consciousness in a way that perhaps hasn't happened? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it climaxes in the end um, with Earth Day, yes, in nineteen seventy, mm. um, which was a huge sort of all around America. Um, it, it was it was observed that this Earth Day, but you know, a couple of years from the point we're talking at just now, um, and 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 on top of all this, um, you have the counterculture, um, which, you know, given this counterculture, you would think it's you know by its very being it would be sort of off on the side and no one really paying notice to it, but the counterculture, and the image of hippies and the you know the summer of love in nineteen sixty seven, the sexual revolution that's going on the. The use of drugs, the advent of the music festival, particularly Monterey in 1967 um, and then Woodstock in 1969, Um, just as like, you know, media like flies to the ointment of this uh, and really kind of show the, the, really give, give a lot of airtime to the hippie movement and the counterculture and everything in a way that outrages a lot of older Americans um, who you know, perceive the society that they'd grown up in as 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 falling apart. Um, uh, so it just adds another another layer of of difference of divide to American society at this point. You see different generations beginning to disagree on how life should be lived. Although a tiny historical anecdote, as as you you and I both know, but maybe our listeners don't. Hippies tended not to refer to themselves as hippies. The con- mm-hmm. freaks or heads was the the term that was tended to be used inside that culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there we go. But I mean, this, I mean, we kind of, you look back at the late 1960s and see the counterculture and see the festival, you see Monterey, you see High Ashbury, you know, you see kind of like long hair and, you know, the Beatles and Jefferson Airplane and all these kind of things. And people like, oh, that's what it was like. But there's actually mainstream American society and mainstream popular culture you know, not, this is a minority of Americans. Not everyone's getting on the hippie, you know, free love and, you yeah. know, finally not, some not decent ev- not music everyone is turning up. Yeah, not everyone is turning up, tuning in and dropping out. No, exactly. Um, not everyone's buying copies of Volunteers and going smoking vast amounts of dope and listening to it, you know. No, I mean, like, you just have to look at the success of the whole Green Berets franchise in the 1960s to see, you know, the... If, if you want... <laughs> you want a treat for your ears um go listen to the ballad of the green berets and then after you've listened to it think about the fact it was number one for five whole weeks um it's basically a military drum beat with a man singing fighting soldiers from their ch- like it's, as, it's, as it's i incredible. pointed out on a previous a to z he's not really singing he's kind yeah, yeah. of talking in time with the music yeah, and and then I, th- I think the fi- I think that comes out in six, yeah, yeah, and then they John Wayne brings out the the film The Green Berets in nineteen sixty eight, I believe, which is basically an attempt to paint the Vietnam War 
as a sort of in western style and good guys versus bad guys in the americas you know sticking it to them and everything and and the war is almost over so yeah and that that was a huge success at the box office as well despite the fact that when vietnam's soldiers in vietnam were shown it they laughed at it such was it's ridiculous yeah they found it hilarious so yeah i mean mainstream culture is not like the counterculture is taking over american life but it is it's one of these things that you know your, your grandpa or your father can be sitting there on oh society's going to hell in a handbasket you know yeah. like that type of thing yeah what is that noise meant to be which is weird like, <laughs> what my father said to me when i was listening to like slayer and metallica and stuff like that so i can kind of kind of understand i actually i actually agree with them on those <laughs> you, well, let's not get into your attitude towards metal anyway so but let's think for a moment about the man man at the top and his ideas for America. So Lyndon Johnson and his great society, let's make America a better place. And the programs that that he was trying to bring forward. Now, he had a certain amount of success from when he kind of arrived in the presidency. But by the time we're getting into 1967-68, the great society is really coming under a lot of pressure. It's coming under a lot of challenges. And who's challenging the great society? Is it just... Uh, conservative congressional republicans who don't like this big government ooh ooh, the federal state is spending money on people that don't deserve it is it just them or is it a bit more complex than that no it's everyone johnson basically becomes an island of one a block of one he it's sort of that way that he he is just sat in the white house and no one else agrees with him at this point and he's because he's been weakened by the vietnam war and by the ongoing urban crisis and everything he is you know people are feeling and because he was so successful in getting congress to do exactly what they want what he wanted them to do for two years it's almost like you know the children are pushing back against the father especially now that the father is weakened type thing um because yeah you've got as you said you know you get conservatives who still think a lot of the great society's ideas are socialism um and also as we've discussed before they are unaffordable at a time of war the whole idea of you can't have guns and butter um but on you know the on the liberal side on the on the right the rise of the new left as well in politics they simply think the great society does doesn't do enough um, the war on poverty isn't working because it doesn't have a big enough budget you need to have if you want to solve the problems of american cities of american racism you need to have a marshall plan for american cities you need to spend billions not mere hundreds of millions um and because the marshall plan results. between 1948 and 1952 for the recovery of europe was 13 billion dollars yeah so Roughly. they're basically saying they're basically saying yeah you need to spend that money then and not often what people who are against the war in vietnam do is they just say well let's come out of vietnam and use the billions we're spending in vietnam to spend it on america's cities um I so mean, is there, is, sorry yeah, on you go so i was gonna ask so because of all of this is the focus of the great society changing are lyndon johnson view views on what the great society is intended to do changing at this point in time yeah i mean the when the focus begins basically johnson is trying you know he passes these programs that sort of help everyone you know medicare Healthcare for all old, older Americans. You know, that is a universal program, as we would talk about it. I mean, it still has Medicaid, which is help for the poor, but you've got that big thing there um, for everyone. Education spending helps everyone's kids, in theory. So, you know, that, that that type of thing. By the time you get to... Even the war on poverty was sold as, as helping a lot of white kids. 
by the, the time you get to the 1960s, more focus is on programs that can help the urban black poor. Um, programs that are called things like model cities, rep supplements, you know, the civil rats bill we've discussed in the past. You still have other things going on. The Great Society, I don't want to oversell it. The complete ethos of government programs being good things hasn't died. Um, you get things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, all these kind of th- incredibly boring pieces of legislation, but which help a lot of people you know it's good that rivers aren't you know festering full of pollution and things like that and so, tie into the burgeoning environmentalism movement which we talked yeah, about a moment ago exactly so i don't want to oversell it um but by 1967-68 the sort of at least pitch, lyndon johnson's personal hopes of achieving this whole dream of a you know of, of conquering racism and poverty through his great society i think he's He's now distracted by the Vietnam War and he's also aware that nobody on the left or the right wants to help him. And of course, I mean, you mentioned me Vietnam there. Vietnam is sapping huge amounts of money yeah. from, the, from, the, from the government. I mean, just it is costing billions of dollars to run this war in Southeast Asia, you know, which yeah. is, I mean, if you're spending money there, you're not spending it on domestic programs. So how, I mean, how does he, how does he square the circle? Does he manage to square the circle of funding Vietnam and funding the Great Society? Not really, no. No. <laughs> um, no, to, to get the surtax that he needed to fight the Vietnam War, which discussed on the last episode, I think, which was the first moment where Americans turned against the war in a, as a majority for a brief moment um, because they were now being hit with attacks. Um, to get that, he had to agree to, for conservatives to back that, he had to agree to slash um, a percentage of great society budget. Um, so, I mean, pretty much people see that, some historians see that as the end of the sort of great society, at least under Lyndon Johnson sort of expansion. Okay, so we've kind of alluded to the fact that the Vietnam War is sapping vast amounts of cash away from the great society, is, is causing all these domestic problems at home. So let's turn to, to Vietnam and the actual war in, in Southeast Asia. So by 1968, Vietnam is seen to be a, a crisis for the United States. So we should probably examine, well, why? What's changed? What is, what has changed between from 1965 and the involvement of American ground troops in mm-hmm. the fighting of Vietnam? What is going on here? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things uh, that are worth highlighting. Um... First of all, in 1968, as the peak, as America reaches its peak involvement in Vietnam, I think there's uh, uh, the height in, in 1968, 500,000 Americans are in Vietnam. I think that's correct, um, and it's and partially as a result of that, it is the highest uh, as uh, as of the years of the Vietnam War. It's the one in which the most people die, yeah, the most Americans die. Sorry, um, so obviously that has ramifications. Um, when, when, when we think uh, to what's going on um, in the United States, if more Americans are dying, then more Americans are upset and many more Americans are angry about what's going on. Um, the second big point, and this is the point that affects Johnson's credibility and the the American war effort more than most, is that in late 1967, I think we alluded to it in the last podcast, Johnson eventually, essentially has William Westmoreland, the commanding general of forces out in Vietnam to go in front of Congress and to go in front of the media and to say victory is at hand. 
We are almost there. We have reached a crossover point. It will all be over by Christmas. Exactly. We've never heard that before. Um, whereby Westmoreland basically, and I think Westmoreland believes this, this is a kind of mad thing, that the Americans are basing this on the kill ratio, whereby they say they're killing like 10 Vietnamese to every Vietnamese enemy to every one of their forces. And Westmoreland believes he's hit this magical crossover point where they're killing so many of the Viet Cong in the North Vietnamese that they the, the enemy can't replenish the men in enough time. And so it will soon be the case that America will be able to, to march to victory. So, you know, comes back, you have this big media offensive on that, you know, the big charm offensive. And, you know, Americans go, okay, that sounds okay. And, and sort of polls look a wee bit better on support for the Vietnam War. And then in January of 1968, um, the biggest event by far of the Vietnam War happens in the form of, of the Tet Offensive. Which is a perennially popular subject for students. I think you'll find that in, in teaching when you're looking yep. at Vietnam, the Tet Offensive seems to be a, a source of great great fascination uh, for students. So, yeah. so we're thinking about Tet, the offensive January 30th, I think it is, the Vietnamese New Year when this yep. first part of the offensive is what happens so essentially the americans know a big attack is coming the they, they they've seen troop supplies troops and supplies moving down the ho chi minh trail at an increased rate and they are pretty certain that an attack is coming and bearing in mind that most of the vietnam war is fought as a guerrilla warfare americans out humping the countryside humping the boonies trying to find enemy to engage with most of the time not finding and if they're found then they're in this close firefight this is the North's first big offensive. And Americans think they know it's coming. But where they think it's coming is they think it's coming right up in the north of South Vietnam, near the demilitarized border, at a place called Khe San. Now, an attack does come at Khe San, but it's merely a decoy. What had actually been happening was, for months, the North had been smuggling through spies in all the cities in South Vietnam. Um, and sympathizers with the communist effort had been preparing an offensive through all of the cities in the south, and the cities were generally seen as safe places to be if you were, if you know, for an, for Americans and for the South Vietnamese government, these were the strongholds. The Viet Cong had the countryside, the Americans had the cities, and then one morning they wake up and, uh, as you say, in the, the the holiday of Tet, so they're not expect, expecting it then. You know, many of the South Vietnamese officers are off on holiday. There is offensives in all of these cities. The agents that are in the cities rise up to try and support, and the entire goal of the Tet Offensive is that the people in these cities, the South Vietnamese people, will rise up and they will overthrow the, the American-backed government and, indeed, the Americans. And therefore, the Vietnam War will have been won, essentially, for the North because the, the Americans can no longer have any hopes of establishing a viable South Vietnamese government that will be loved by the people. And that's not what happens, though, because, I mean, what no. we see from Tet is the North Vietnamese command, you know, led by figures like Le Duan and Le Duc Tho, coming up against I mean the, the Tet is a very very clever plan I mean let, you know, let's not you know not acknowledge that but they come up against massive American firepower mm -hmm. you know in terms of like air forces artillery ground forces all mm -hmm. of that kind of thing and the devastation caused as a result of Tet you know in cities like Hue the old imperial yeah. capital is vast 
Yeah, I the mean, civilian the, death toll is huge. Yeah, the, I mean the nor the northern forces or the Viet Cong forces commit a massacre of many of the South Vietnamese population in there, and it's it's always worth remembering in the Vietnam War that a lot of South Vietnamese did not love the the, the communist government in the north either, you know, because it was quite a ruthless operation. But I mean, yeah, the, the Tet fails part, you know, because of American firepower, but also because people in the cities don't rise up. They they don't rise up to to overthrow them for whatever reason, whether it be fear or or whether it be because they just don't love. Um, the communist forces either um, but Tet has a great significance not particularly on the battlefield because because the North sustained huge losses um, to the point where the American military are high-fiving each other you know in the end they're, dri- they're driven out of every city they get to but back home the American people see the images being beamed back to them of the Viet Cong in the grounds of the American embassy um, in a firefight and hand-to-hand combat in the streets of Saigon and various other cities and that places the the Johnson narrative that we are on the, the cusp of victory here completely uh, that goes out the window they're just like oh see so we've been completely lied to here second of all you have the famous image and the famous television clip of um, General Lone the, the South Vietnamese general loan, a pl- military police officer, shooting uh, in the head a, South, uh, a Viet Cong agent in the streets of Saigon. You know, the gun goes up to the head and you literally see this man die on television. Um, and that is sort of a moment for a lot of Americans to question whether they have picked the right dog in this fight. Whether the South Vietnamese are the allies that they want to have. It sort of reminds me of uh, that that Mitchell and Webb sketch, sketch that, that you introduced me to of uh, where they're talking with the, they're, they're the Nazis in the trench. The, the and they eventually Nazis, go, yes. Yeah, and then they go, one of them goes, wait a minute, are we the bad, bad guys? Bad guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know. But, um, so, but that kind of, that ties into another thing, and we'll talk more about this in the, the next episode, is the ways in which South Vietnamese people you know, whether they are kind of anti-communist, liberal or conservative anti-communists and different religious denominations are starting to resent the US presence in the country, are starting to resent the, you know, the devastation being caused by the US presence, by the fact that places like Saigon have, you know, turned into the levels of prostitution, sexually transmitted disease, black marketeering, profiteering, all that kind of stuff. There's a, a lot of, even amongst you know, South Vietnamese who are anti-communist who don't like the North, are starting to really resent the United States. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's just rampant inflation in the economy because it's all American military spending going into it, so normal people are struggling to, to get by. So if Tet is such a military victory for the, you know, the forces that are dominated by the, the United States and the, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, how, what is what's the effect back home? I mean, it's because is it a defeat? What about the media? What's all going on there? Yeah, so I mean, one of the reasons it's um, a defeat is kind of what they say about political debates. It's not necessarily how you do in the debates, how the you know how it's how the fallout is covered afterwards. So I mean, there's a couple of things here. Um, I'll deal with the media in a second, but the Johnson's big PR defeat in the aftermath is the fact that it comes out that William Westmoreland comes back after Tet and asks him for another 200,000 troops. 
the New York Times gets hold of this information and Americans are just like, are you actually kidding me? You just said we were on the verge of winning this war and now you want 200,000 more troops. And an knock-on from that is the fact that Johnson meets with the, the wise men council, as they're known. This is sort of former secretaries of state, defence, military men, and even guys like Dean Aitchison, who had, you know, cold warrior of all cold warrior going back to the Truman days, who basically say, just get out. We're, we're, we're going to lose. You know, that you know, like it's, it's stupid to just keep going deeper and deeper. And they'd, up to that point, told Johnson to stay the course. You know, don't, you know, show weakness. And they begin telling him, no, it's time to go. His own Secretary of Defence tells him, no, this, this isn't a war worth fighting anymore. So you've got that going on. In terms of your question about the media, I am entirely sceptical that the media do anything. Maybe newspaper journalists have a certain bent to try and put the... Um, to to turn some opinion against the war. But in terms of television, which is one of the, the, the main medium at this time... What television does is the fact it's there. The fact, tele, the television had never been there before to show the fighting. It would never be there again, really, because ever since then, censorship has been in place to, to stop television cameras seeing the chaotic scenes that uh, they witnessed in Saigon. And the fact that the Tet Offensive mostly takes place in Saigon, which is where all the television crews are, because they can't hump their huge material, huge big cameras out to the countryside and, and film um, the war there. But they're able to film the, the American embassy attack and the chaotic scenes. And just by doing that, it gives the American people a window into the war that they never really had up to that point. So I don't think the media, at least the television media, have an agenda of sorts to portray Tet as a defeat. I just think by showing these moving images, showing the chaos showing American troops looking lost, people lying dead in the street, they, a lot of Americans came to their own conclusion that they had been lied to about what was happening in Vietnam. But I feel that is enough of Tet. Um, and, and I think maybe just before we begin to wrap things up, you, you hinted at this earlier in the, in the podcast that aside from Vietnam, you actually have the rise of of detente um, in this period, for, sort of following the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I think it, I think it would probably be good as well if you can catch us up because that's sort of where we left all the other foreign policy and the Cuban Missile Crisis way back in the Ascent episode. So what what else is going on in the world up to this point between sort of sixty four and sixty eight? The, the answer the answer is a lot, uh, but from Lyndon Johnson's perspectives perspective, uh, something like the Chinese nuclear test of nineteen sixty four. Is, is a major moment. Suddenly there is a you know, non-white state that has nuclear weapons now. And this is a, a subject of great concern, both for the United States and for the Soviet Union. Because we need to remember that between the late 50s and into the early 60s, we've seen the Sino-Soviet split. This kind of like, you know, split in the what was perceived as a monolithic communist world. Uh, and we now have like two different poles uh, within the communist world. And there was very brief discussion during the Kennedy era uh, of joint US-USSR military action to halt China's nuclear weapons program. That never went anywhere. 
But there was a brief discussion about this. But the Chinese test is kind of is celebrated by large parts of the, the developing world. It's seen as a great victory against you know neo-colonialism, neo-imperialism. It demonstrates that non-white peoples can develop the same things as, as white peoples. But it also leads to wider concerns about the wider proliferation of nuclear weapons and helps to spur efforts to create a nuclear non-proliferation treaty to prevent any further spread. Now, there have... There have been previous attempts at this and the importance of smaller states like Ireland and Mexico in driving the initial move towards a nuclear non-proliferation treaty. But Johnson only really gets interested in this, what becomes the 1968 nuclear non-proliferation treaty, in about 1967. And one of the reasons is he needs a fallen foreign policy victory, a positive foreign policy agenda to try and take attention away from Vietnam. So the NPT and nuclear non-proliferation is seen as a positive thing. Plus, there's a bunch of other stuff happening. So the US is, you know, is has an interest in the results of the 1965 Indo-Pakistani war on the Indian subcontinent, and Lyndon Johnson puts in an arms embargo that the United States is not going to sell arms to either side, to either India or Pakistan. There, despite the US nominally being allied towards Pakistan. There's the 1965 uh, invasion of the Dominican Republic uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, there's all sorts of other kind of Central and Latin American issues. There's the ongoing legacies of the, the Congo crisis that kicked off in 1960s. So Johnson administration, Vietnam is the big foreign policy issue, but there is a whole bunch of other stuff taking place at this point in time. Yeah, and I mean, it sort of reinforces that notion that, you know, 1968 isn't just chaotic for America. It's not just a crisis in America. It's, there's a crisis around the globe that goes on. And, and obviously, even 1968, you're going to get the Prague Spring where, the, you know, Soviet troops will, will crush that. So, so yeah, it's a volatile time in world history, the rise of the new left around the world and the students' movement and things like that. But an important thing to point out is that despite the Prague Spring, what 1968 demonstrates and using the NPT as an example is that the United States and the Soviet Union and Britain is a signatory power of the NPT as well that they can work together and create these international treaties in common with, with common interests so and I think within that we see the roots of what becomes referred to as detente in the Nixon era and into into the 1970s so it, it demonstrates that perhaps this bipolar order, you know, isn't as fixed and stable. It's not a bipolar order anymore, it's multipolar. Uh, and some historians like Anders Stephenson, I don't necessarily agree with them, argue that the Cold War, as we know it, in terms of the bipolar nuclear armed conflict, ends sometime about 1962-63 after the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't agree with that, but it's an interesting perspective. That's a lot of crisis. There is a lot going on domestically and a lot going on in the world there. What happens to Lyndon Johnson in March 1968? In March 1968, um, Johnson removes himself from the presidential election um, as a result of a combination of the fact that in the New Hampshire primary, the anti-war candidate Eugene McCarthy um, achieves, uh, it, like Johnson only gets 49% of the vote, which is unheard of at the time for a sitting president to get so little. Normally you'd expect like 90 something percent of the vote. Then on the back of that, Robert Kennedy, Johnson's chief nemesis, um, and I don't use that word lightly, they hated each other, um, got, into, got into the race as well against Johnson. And 
also Johnson is an ill man. Um, he's not particularly well. He, I didn't mention it in the Ascent episode, but he had a massive heart attack in the mid-50s. His people and his men in his family did not live long. He was acutely aware of this. And he had a lot of health issues in, in office and the prospect of another four years probably would have killed him given that he di- he dies only f- you know five years after getting out of office um without the burdens of, of of white house life so yeah he goes on television he announces he's no longer running for the democrats nomination and he um he announces a partial halt to the bombing of north vietnam um in a bid to bring them to the peace table um, and we'll discuss how those efforts go in in the in the next episode. Do you think very briefly? Do you think Johnson's uh, is he a victim of the kind of avalanche of events, or or is it his fault? Is it his decisions? Um, can I be that horrible historian who sits on the fence? Um, but that's fine because questions of blame are totally <laughs> boring. It's more the uh, how and the why is the most interesting thing. I know exactly. I mean, he is in some sense a victim of his own decisions, um, particularly, most obviously, is the Vietnam War. Um, now, you could argue that the Vietnam, he fights the Vietnam War because of his times, because his, he comes out of this rabidly anti-communist fear of appeasement, all, all the reasons we discussed in the previous episode. But if he had been a leader with more wisdom, with more dexterity uh, in the way he approached the Vietnam War then I, I think I think you can make a plausible argument he could have got out of it and not sank uh, so much blood and money into a war that was the main reason for his unravelling of his presidency. On the domestic front I think he was a victim of his times. I, I mean I, like I said it's kind of weird that Johnson is the one who is sort of burdened with the urban crisis and the, the, the racial violence and and at a time when he is he is the main force in government I would say at least in, in the maybe not the main force in government but one of the main forces in government that leads to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. He drives this great society which underneath it all really does want to help you know African Americans uh, like poor African Americans He's one of the only presidents to ever acknowledge the legacy of slavery and how that had impacted the African-American experience. And so I don't think you can blame the urban crisis on him. I'm not saying he didn't handle it perfectly. He he made some heavy-handed decisions with, with regard to how, to how to deal with the riots. Um, but I, th- I think in terms of on, on Vietnam, he's a victim of his own decisions and in domestic policy, he's a victim of his own of, of the times in which he lived. And I think we'll end it there. Thank you, Mark. You've done the majority of the talking and thinking for this episode. Uh, so thank you for shouldering that burden. Uh, on the next and the penultimate episode in this series, episode five, we're going to be looking at the period roughly from mid-1968 until Lyndon Johnson's death in 1973, looking at the short to medium term outcomes of his decisions of Vietnam, of domestic policy, and the rise of Richard Nixon as well. So, until next time, thank you very much for all your input, Mark. Uh, Thank you very much. I cannot wait to discuss Richard Nixon. Fantastic. (laughs) And thank you all for listening, 
and we'll see you again in episode five. Cheerio.